Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. We've been doing these weekly shows for nearly two years now. Through the weeks, we've brought you voices from around the country, both from inside the national parks and outside. Voices discussing whether guns can protect you from bears in a national park's backcountry, or what music will you hear at the Blue Ridge Music Center on the Blue Ridge Parkway. We've also looked into the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory and what its staff does, the science behind wolves in Yellowstone, and the audiophonic wizardry, if you will, of recording the sounds of nature in the national park system. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these shows and their guests as much as we've enjoyed discussing various aspects of national parks with them. To help us expand on these shows, please consider a donation to National Parks Traveler. We're a 501c3 nonprofit media organization focused solely on covering national parks and protected areas. Your support goes directly to our efforts in producing daily editorial content every day of the year to keep you informed on the world's grandest national park system. You can find a donate button at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we look at one of the hottest places on earth, Death Valley National Park in southeastern California in western Nevada. And this summer was especially hot. The park broke records in a number of categories as it experienced some of the hottest days ever recorded on earth. August was particularly brutal, with record temperatures reached 12 times for both the daily high and the daily low. To take a closer look at these numbers and why they don't seem to be a deterrent to visitors, Travelers Lynn Riddick spoke with Death Valley Superintendent Mike Reynolds. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. On August 16, 2020, Death Valley hit its hottest air temperature recorded in the park since 1913, which happened to be the highest temperature ever recorded. It reached 130 degrees, just 4 degrees shy of the 1913 high of 134. There were a number of other kinds of heat-related broken records in the park this summer as well. Here to talk about these record temps is Superintendent Mike Reynolds. Hi, Mike. Welcome to The Traveler. 
Hi, good morning, Lynn. How are you doing? I'm doing great. What's the weather like there today? So today's weather, believe it or not, is sunny. And here in Furnace Creek in Death Valley, it is 101 degrees at uh, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So strangely, for those of you that don't live here, um, that is the coolest day we've had since uh, early to mid-May. We just went over 100, but it might have, it was close to being the first day we didn't go over 100 since May. Well, I want to ask about some specific records that were hit this summer in the park. But first, would you give us a description of Death Valley National Park and what is it about the geology that makes the park so hot? Oh, my gosh. Well, so Death Valley National Park is, um, and I want to say before we get too far into heat, is so much more than just heat. But heat is certainly one of the things that's most exciting for people who visit or have heard about. And those of us that live here, heat is a very exciting thing about Death Valley. But Death Valley is actually 3.4 million acres, so about the size of the state of Connecticut, and spans uh, close to 20 different mountain ranges, ranging in elevation from uh, below sea level at Badwater to um, over 11,000 feet of elevation uh, where there's you know, uh, forested pines and, and can be snow uh, much of the winter. So lots of varied um, diversity here um, in Death Valley, but uh, the part that is the hottest place on earth happens in the, in the actual Death Valley. So the series of valleys and mountain ranges and one of the valleys is called Death Valley. That's the lowest one. And because of a series of north-south facing mountain ranges, starting with the Sierra Nevada in uh, eastern California, um, and then uh, the Argus Range, and then the Panamint Range, and then followed by Death Valley, which, as I mentioned before, is below sea level, which is extremely deep. Um, the weather patterns are really not able to pass through all those mountain ranges and deliver, um, deliver much rain. And then it's such a deep hole that often the temperatures can just be trapped in here you know, throughout the, throughout the summertime and um, get to just amazingly scorchingly hot temperatures that, uh, that are very, very interesting, which is what we're talking about today. So what kind of temperature extremes then do you see between the low-lying areas of the park and the highest elevations, number-wise? Well, as you mentioned, Lynn, earlier this year, we had 130 degree Fahrenheit temperature on the valley floor um, back in August. And then all the way up at 11,000 feet, you can have temperatures that are well below zero. Uh, and certainly at that level of exposure, there's a lot of wind. And so much like uh, any mountain ranges, you can have uh, temperatures below zero. On the valley floor itself, although rare, uh, typically you'll have a night or two in the, in the winter where it actually dips below freezing, uh, or at least certainly pretty close to 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's the range you would get. Uh, it's from about 30 up to 130 on the valley floor. Now, the summer had an average temperature, and this is a number combining both night and day for June, July, and August of 102.7 degrees. And in August, the daily high averaged 118.8 degrees. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts about these numbers, and perhaps you can tell us about some of the other heat records that were hit this summer. Yeah, so it's it's fairly interesting uh, when you talk about the average temperature in a given day, because um, when you talk about high temperatures in the summertime, most people will point to the daily high. If you watch the news in your town and it says, what's the high temperature tomorrow? It'll say, you know, 88 or 92 degrees or whatever. Um, and so in Death Valley, that in the summertime typically ranges from uh, 115 to 127 degrees, pretty much from late May all the way into mid-September. 
that's the, the range of, of highs, and it's fairly stable within that range. What has changed dramatically over the last five years are the nighttime lows, uh, which have uh, risen a, a good deal. And so where the long-term average of nighttime lows, say above 100, so where the nighttime temperature doesn't dip below 100, used to be it only happened once every other year. It was sort of a, a rare phenomenon. And, and I've, I've heard that Death Valley is one of the only places on earth where that phenomenon happens, where the nighttime lows don't go below 100 occasionally. Um, this year, as an example, we had six of them. In 2018, I believe we had nine of them. So it's becoming more and more frequent. And, and that's really where what drives up the average daily temperature is, is the, as the nighttime temperatures are getting warmer and warmer, the average temperature for a given day is also therefore going up. And so, yeah, 2020 was the fourth hottest summer in Death Valley history. And because Death Valley is the hottest place on earth, that therefore makes it the fourth hottest summer anywhere on earth in history. But what's maybe more interesting are the three hottest, that it, so it's the fourth hottest, the three hottest are 2016, 2017, and 2018, and now 2020. So what you'll notice about those four uh, numbers is that um, they're all within the last five years. And so as we see the climate changing, um, we're, we're certainly, what we're seeing in Death Valley are, are higher, uh, higher temperatures and more frequent and intense storms um, as well to go along with that. 35 days over 120 degrees. You know, it kind of gets to be normal when you have 35 days over 120. Um, I want to say that's becoming more and more normal. Let's see, in 2017, we had 15 of them. In 2018, which was the hottest summer in history, uh, we experienced 40 days over 120. So we were just a little bit, little bit behind that. I don't know. It doesn't feel a whole lot different between 110, 120, 125. I think um, there are subtle differences, but it's all just sort of what it is here. So talking about these stats and these records broken, is there anything that you find especially alarming? Um, I think it's particularly alarming that four of the five hottest years on Earth's history or in Death Valley history are, are in the last five years that were continually, every year is a record-setting year. So it's very exciting, I guess, um, as somebody who's living here right now and you get to experience uh, world record or close to world record temperatures and it's uh, fun to watch it on a day-to-day -day basis. But it is gonna be interesting to see what the impacts are on the natural environment. Just having the, the continue, I mean, the. You know, Death Valley certainly has a history of being hot, but it doesn't have a history of being that hot for that long in every summer. And so, you know, I guess one doesn't really know what the impacts are going to be on the natural environment because it's never experienced this before. So one of the things that's cool about national parks is we have the ability to be here and observe and uh, talk about what's happening. And there's no question that what's happening now uh, with the the climate in Death Valley is changing, and we uh, are lucky to be in a national park where we have scientists working here that are able to you know, measure these things and be able to articulate that. And as it impacts the natural environment, we'll be able to see what impacts that has on the you know, flora and fauna of Death Valley. We certainly can tell you what happens to visitors when they come here, and it's, um, it's hot. But So I'm looking forward, really, to seeing what, um, what we 
are able to observe. If you say, is there anything that alarms me? I mean, it, it's hard to say what it's going to impact, but it's definitely changing. And the, you know, the plants and animals that have adapted to live here didn't adapt to live here in temperatures that are that hot for that long. And so it's hard to say what the impact will be, but it certainly will be something. I'm curious about the process of measuring official temperatures. Um, where in the park are the temperatures measured? How did they get documented and reported? And who is the ultimate keeper of those numbers? So the National Weather Service um, out of the Las Vegas field office uh, maintains an official weather station right here at Furnace Creek. So Furnace Creek is where the park headquarters and visitor center sits. So if you've been to Death Valley and you went to the visitor center, you were at Furnace Creek. It's also where the uh, Furnace Creek Inn and Ranch Resort are that are quite famous that used to be known as Greenland Ranch. And I say that because the National Weather Service's weather station prior to, I want to say the 40s or 50s was located at Greenland Ranch about a mile from here. So um, it's been continuously measuring the weather, the National Weather Service has been continuing measuring the weather at Furnace Creek uh, for over 100 years, and uh, that's where they continue to do it. And there's a whole science to it. So it's not just um, like you and I, Lynn, might have a thermometer on our back porch that's a pretty good estimate, or even the one in our car that tells you what's going on. But the, the Weather Service has a whole set of standards that they follow to ensure that it's as accurate as possible. For example, um, you, you have to have it um, I don't know the exact number of feet, but more than more than five or six feet off the ground to avoid ground reflecting ground reflecting temperatures. Um, you have to have it inside in a fully enclosed box so that the sun won't amplify the temperature beyond what um, what it actually is, et cetera, et cetera. So there's um there's a weather station right behind uh, the Furnace Creek Visitor Center where the Weather Service takes that and they um, they take it digitally and then that signal is transferred back to the you know, weather, weather station computers in, in Las Vegas where it's recorded. Now, in the case of the 130 degree temperature that took place back in August, um, they have, uh, and really I would recommend an interview with the uh, National Weather Service guy in Vegas, because I, I don't know the exact process, but they get together a bunch of weather experts from the National Meteorological Association, from the world uh, meteorological folks, as well as the state and local offices in the National Weather Service, and they have a committee that reviews the equipment and conditions surrounding a, a record-setting weather event, such as the 130-degree temperature in Death Valley back on August 16th. And they also compare it to local temperatures. So just in case that particular piece of equipment might have malfunctioned, you would expect um, a similar, in, in the region, you would expect similarly hot temperatures. Normally, it's eight degrees cooler, for example, in Pahrump or 15 degrees in Vegas, you would expect those gaps to be pretty similar for that day. So they would um, compare those. And in the case of the 130 degree temperature, they actually came out um, the next day and pulled the thermometer and the equipment out and replaced it with new stuff so that they could take it back to the lab and calibrate it to ensure that um, it's, uh, it's accurate. So it'll be several months before they certify it, so to speak, but it's official the, the minute that the Weather Service measures it with the equipment that they have there. Very interesting. Your park conducts heat safety training for staff. Tell us about that. So yeah, um, we have because we have over 100 staff members that work in Death Valley all year long, um, in the summertime, which is 
which is uh, interestingly popular with heat-seeking tourists, so a lot of visitors want to come here in the summertime. Our staff, of course, continue working throughout the summer, um, even with these extreme temperatures, and keeping in mind that even at night, um, the temperature may not dip much, if any, below 100 degrees, then uh, we have to adapt how we do our work. And there's certainly training involved as their staff turnover or people forget during the during the eight months of comfortable, cool temperatures throughout the uh, winter and spring, how we need to conduct ourselves, especially if you have to do outdoor work in the summertime. So uh, for example, some of the adaptations, uh, certainly working earlier in the morning, um, if you're able to, and the, you know, it's, you have you have first light at 4:30 or 5. So if you can start your shift at 4 or 5 in the morning, you're able to to do work before it's too scorching hot. Uh, you can you can get some of your outdoor work done. Certainly, shifting your outdoor work to be earlier in the morning and your your paperwork or your indoor work later in the day. Some of the other things we uh, we require of workers here that of course is carried out as part of the training um, is the work rest ratio. And so you can actually do most types of work in the summer. However, um, if it's uh, over 120 degrees uh, or over 115 degrees or over 110 degrees, we have different um, gradients of work rest ratios. You actually at 120 get to a 50 minute rest for every 10 minute of physically demanding work that you carry out. So it takes that long for your body to actually recover from uh, 10 minutes of heavy exertion at 120 plus degrees to rehydrate and cool back down to be able to do that again safely without um, without starting a cycle of dehydration that's hard to re- harder to recover from and might take a day or two for that. So you want to uh, make sure you're resting enough. Fluids-wise, you want to take in, uh, often the people working outside can go, um, you know, even over a gallon a day is, is a, a pretty good suggestion. And if you're going to be outside, you'll need at least that. Some, sometimes I'll drink close to two gallons during a work day if I'm outside all day. Um, and I think that's true for, for most of the folks here. So a lot of it is just reminding ourselves to take a, what seems like a ridiculous amount of water, finding ways to keep it cool, adjusting the work that you're doing, making sure you're working with um, with the team. So at above 115, we, we no longer, uh, we ask that people don't go by themselves and do strenuous outdoor work. You have to have a buddy in case you're able to um, have trouble with the heat, then somebody will will know about it. And we have a check-in and check-out system with the radio and dispatch. So if you're on a backcountry road in the summertime, you need to call in and say where you're going. Going back to that work-rest ratio, did you say 10 minutes of work to 15 or 50 minutes of rest? 1-5 or 5-0? Yeah. 50, so 5 five o, And so that's, the, that's in the most extreme category, uh, so above 120 for outdoor strenuous work. The most extreme category is, yeah, 10 on, 50 off. If the work you're doing outside is less strenuous, if you're just walking around or carrying light items, then it's more like a 30-30. But yeah, for the the most strenuous, it goes all the way up to, to 10 on and 50 off. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'm speaking with Mike Reynolds, superintendent of Death Valley National Park. When we return, we'll talk more about the impact of extreme heat on visitation. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. 
The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'm back with Death Valley National Park Superintendent Mike Reynolds. Mike, I thought it was interesting to learn that the park has visitors. You referred to them as heat-seeking tourists who come to experience just how hot it is there. I'm guessing everyone who visits is fully aware that extreme heat is part of the park experience, but what are some of the factors that visitors underestimate the most? Oh, uh, a lot of folks do come here in the summertime. Actually, yeah, August and September, this is a surprising statistic, Lynn, that, that August and September are typically our two busiest months of the year at Death Valley. So visitation tends to be equal throughout the year, but summertime will experience uh, probably 70% or greater of Europeans come European visitation come to Death Valley and August and September, uh, which is when European holiday is, uh, is typically when we have our busiest months. And those people are specifically coming here to experience the um, the highest of the high temperatures. Uh, July and August are, is when it, you know the high highest temperatures occur. And you know when it's over 120, the most popular photo in the park is actually of the thermometer in front of the visitor center. There's a really cool thermometer that shows the you know temperature in big digits right in front of the uh, VC with a good desert display behind it. And people line up to take their photograph by the by the thermometer. What do they underestimate? You know, interestingly, when the heat is extreme, um, people still do go hike all of the fairly popular uh, low elevation hikes. They're sh- they they just don't go as far. So they'll go to Badwater or Golden Canyon or the Mesquite Sand Dunes, but you don't see them going out as far. They experience the heat and then they're like, okay, I walked a half mile. I'm going to get back in my air conditioned vehicle and, and cool down before I go do the next thing. And I think people underestimate how quickly they can uh, dehydrate here, especially if you're walking, you know, walking outdoors. So, you know, we try to encourage people to carry a lot of water, cold water, and and drink more than you think you need because you can get behind really quickly on water. I would say hydration is probably the biggest thing. Um, Most people are pretty smart and they know that when it's 120 degrees, they're not going to go for a, you know, a huge hike or a a big run or something like that. They, they, you don't typically see a lot of people bicycling around or, or whatever. And so actually, uh, in the hottest part of the summer, we have fewer problems with heat emergencies than we do on the shoulder seasons, 
what is interesting is when that, like, like right now where the high temperatures might be in the low hundreds, 105, 107 yesterday, um, but the overnight low this morning, it was, you know, 75 degrees. It was very comfortable. And so people get lulled into a sense of if they start hiking early in the morning at 75 degrees, they're like, this is really comfortable. But by afternoon, when it's 105, they weren't prepared. They weren't prepared for that. And so we have more, I think visitors have more trouble in the, on the shoulder seasons with uh, dehydration and uh, heat emergencies than they do in the heat of the summer. Yeah, I wanted to ask you if most of your park rescues were related to people underestimating the heat conditions. I don't know if I would say most. Um, certainly, there's some. There's a you know there's there's some every summer. I would say on the average, we have one to two fatalities a year that are heat related, but we also have five or six that are related to car crashes or just life. Uh, people having you know, heart attacks or the types of things that that you have um, as you know, part of life and and certainly vehicle accidents are a significant number. Not any more frequently or less frequently in the summer than the winter, but of course, summer there's fewer people camping at lower elevations because of the extreme heat, and so they don't stay as long as a visitor, so you're more likely to have a, either a car crash or a heat emergency or a search and rescue for somebody that uh, over, over or underestimated their abilities or their, uh, yeah, they overestimated their abilities to hike in the extreme heat. So I think this summer we had three or four uh, search and rescues to extract people. I know we had one fatality of a hiker at Golden Canyon. Um, we had two that were really, really close to not making it. Um, that, you know, one guy was just going about four miles and that last mile was too much for him. And if he hadn't been able to get out a cell phone call, um, a scratchy cell phone call, I think, if, you know, he would have been close on whether he made it or not. So, yeah, it certainly happens, but it's not as much as you would think. It's not like it's every day. We try to uh, work with visitors too when they get here, um, you know, just to to provide information on, you know, remind people about walking in the morning. We don't we don't recommend hiking after 10 in the morning during the, the heat of summer. So try to do your walking early in the morning and make sure you have enough uh, water and certainly sun sun protection and sun cover. We definitely recommend people wear loose clothing and and. If if you can wear like you know baggy clothing to keep uh, to cover your skin, you're less likely to get impacted by the by the sun that way. I understand vehicle overheating and engine fires can be a problem there. Uh, tell us about those issues. Yeah, so um, there's a couple of funny stories with I don't know what to call it funny, but um, that is a co- that is a common thing that happens. It's less common than it used to be. So we used to have to maintain we used to maintain water tanks throughout the park on all of the hills and it was really common for your vehicle to overheat or and then need to add water to the radiator that's um, way less common and about 10 years ago we actually took the water tanks out because they were um, costly to maintain and they would leak and they not very many people were were taking advantage of them Um, but there are several times a year you know vehicles that certainly overheat and catch fire. But what's actually the most common thing um, because of the extreme elevation changes, and I'd mentioned earlier about, you know, below sea level to 11,000 feet, uh, the roads themselves, the paved roads go uh, from below sea level to over 5,000 feet at Towns Pass. And there's several other um, passes throughout the park that people drive over. So if you come over Towns Pass, for example, heading down into Stillpipe Wells on the valley floor, you'll drop 5,000 feet in 18 miles. So that's a lot of elevation either gained or lost. And what's more common is people um, that 
don't downshift and use the engine to slow down, then their brakes will catch on fire. And that's more, um, more frequent. Maybe once a month there will be a, a truck or an RV or a vehicle who will burn up their brakes uh, coming down into, into still pipe wells off of Towns Pass. So there's multiple vehicle fires a year from that. It's really dangerous for trucks and, and RVs to go on uh, Highway 190 over Towns Pass. And so, so that happens. But the funny story that people may not know is because of the extreme temperatures and elevation changes throughout the summer, uh, car companies, auto, automobile manufacturing companies from across the world will bring their vehicles to Death Valley and get a permit from the Park Service to test their vehicles in the extreme climactic conditions and with the, uh, with the hills. And so if you come here in the summertime, you will see uh, zebra and weird, wildly crazy painted cars um, in strings of, you know, anywhere from two to five or six, just driving around up and down the hills and they're testing their testing the cars in the heat to go up and down and and trying to prevent the things we were just talking about, Lynn, where you know the brakes might catch a car on fire or the car would overheat. And I think uh, because of all that testing, the vehicles have gotten more and more stable. And even you know 15 or 20 years ago, overheating cars were way more common than they than they are uh, than they are now. Probably uh, partly because of the car testing, but also with all the car testers because these are models often that aren't even released yet so they're they're testing them before they sell them the paparazzi will come here to try to the automobile paparazzi will come here to try to photograph the cars and the car companies try to conceal the new features on the vehicles. so it's kind of a funny phenomenon that happens here in the summertime that most people don't um, don't know about that's fun to watch if you're here I wanted to ask you more about the um, what kind of impact does the heat which is trending upward have on summer visitation numbers compared to like 20 or 30 years ago, but it doesn't sound like there is much of an impact. Uh, well, actually our visits, I don't know if it connects with the heat, but our visitation um, has skyrocketed. So in 10 years, it's doubled. So not counting 2020, where it, it plummeted, obviously due to the COVID closure. And then since then with European travel being uh, restricted, the visitation has dropped dramatically in 2020. But through 2019, we had set uh, visitation records several years in a row. Uh, and in 2019, we had about 1.7 million visitors, which is about double what it was 10 years ago. So Death Valley's visitation is exploding. I don't know that it's necessarily connected or not connected with the with the rising temperatures. It's just visitation at a lot of the desert parks at Joshua Tree and, and Zion. Um, and, and some of the others in, in the area are is going up at, in a similar trend. Uh, so yeah, we're definitely experiencing more visitation, but I'm not sure it's connected with the heat. What's the rainfall like there? Or maybe I should say lack of rainfall. So uh, Death Valley is the driest place in North America. Well, on, the, um, on the average in a year, we uh, receive 1.9 inches of rain. Our last rain, for example, now it's September 30th. The last rain in Death Valley was on June 10th. We received a tenth of an inch. And before that, I want to say it was February or March uh, since we had any measurable rainfall. So it doesn't rain very often, but when it does, it can be uh, some pretty awesome storms that come through. You know, typically in, in August, September, there can be some monsoonal impacts, not as much as some other places like Arizona or uh, Southern California where the monsoons break through because uh, as I mentioned earlier with the mountain ranges, it often blocks them. But when it doesn't, you can have some pretty awesome and powerful storms 
which are fun to watch and see the impacts from. Uh, and But yeah, typically in an average year, we have, I don't know, something like 350 days of, of sun and a couple weeks of uh, maybe maybe 10 or 12 days of rain. It's not very not very often. And when it does happen, it's a pretty neat event because it's so rare. And of course, there's lots of um, lots of plants in particular that uh, you know, you can see them react to particular events. So when it rains in Death Valley, if you get a significant amount of rain, say over a day or two, predictably shortly after that, two to four weeks after that, you'll see lots of things bloom um, that that may not bloom for you know months or even years in some case and and all of suddenly all of the creosote bushes will have little yellow flowers all over them um, little flowers will pop out of the ground that you know right now it's just hard baked some of the ground doesn't, doesn't have anything and if it rains come back in three or four weeks there'll be small plants everywhere um, and that can happen throughout the year but the most of course the most famous is about once every 10 to 15 years. If the rain conditions and the wind conditions are just right from October through January, you can have what's called a super bloom in the springtime. We had one most recently in 2016, um, and the whole desert floor on the on the valley floor, the desert and the valley floor, will explode with two or three different types of flowers that can proliferate and become uh, quite scenic and and abundant and huge and you don't you're like wow where did that come from and then of course by may they start drying up and and you know they're brown by june uh, but it's a pretty neat explosion that lasts about two months that people like to to see it sounds really beautiful um i did want to go back and talk a little bit more about the wildlife and the impact of the heat on wildlife are there threatened or endangered species that might not survive if the extreme summers continue like you had this past summer? That is a good question. Um, certainly the wildlife are impacted. Uh, you know, there's lots of adaptations that they've carried out um, just by living in the hottest place on earth. And so uh, if you were to say, come here um, in summertime, you might see animals like, uh, you know, I don't know, coyotes and uh, some of the other animals that typically favor coming out at night when it's not as hot. And a lot of the lizards or other reptiles, some of them might be active in the middle of the day, but a lot of them um, take shelter during the heat of the day and are more active in morning and evening. Uh, as for what will happen as the temperatures continue to get warmer, I would go back to what we talked about before is it's hard to say because it's unprecedented. So um, we haven't experienced temperatures that they're, you know, it's hotter earlier, it's hotter later, it's hotter and it's hotter longer and it's hotter at night. So if you're an animal that's adapted to, you know, operating at night and sleeping during the day in a, in a shady spot, but now your nights are eight degrees warmer, it's hard to say what exactly that impact is going to be, but certainly it will be it will be something. So I guess I don't have a solid answer as to what will happen, but I certainly would um, appreciate the fact that it's a national park and we have you know we have a wildlife specialist here and a, a team of scientists that are very interested in studying things here. And by being a national park, it's set aside and and being able to study impacts of changing climate is one of the things that uh, for which we preserve parks and so as visitors come we'll be able to observe what's happening and uh, interpret that to folks and so i would encourage folks that are interested in exactly that question uh, to come visit here 
and ask that question of the rangers as we're trying to figure out what those impacts would be and you can perhaps see it happening and, and learn about it here at death alley now you mentioned the uh, thermometer in the park and how a lot of folks who are visiting take photos because you know it's probably the highest temperature they've ever seen and i did see a photo it was a in your news release about this summer's uh, high heat temperatures, and it showed a park ranger standing next to the thermometer reading 130 degrees with the onlookers taking photos. And so I was curious to know, how much is weather a part of ranger presentations? You know, the, it's one of the things people are, are, it's probably the number one thing, well, after, after restrooms, it's probably the number one thing people ask about in the summertime is the weather, the temperatures. Um, and, you know, the forecast certainly, and, you know, people are fascinated by the extreme numbers and um, often, I mean, it's really, really common. It's almost every day uh, that I go out by the thermometer in the summer and talk to visitors and they're taking a picture of, you know, uh, it's not 130, obviously, is, you know, it's a record that was really rare, but it's absolutely common for it to be 122, 123, 124. And, and visitors are usually like, I've never experienced anything above 104 or 105 is a fairly common number that you hear people um, haven't. They set their lifetime record um, by by quite a bit in coming here uh, and experiencing it. So um, definitely people are interested in it and they ask a lot about the temperatures. Um, And yeah, so the day, uh, August 16th, when we had the 130 degree temperature, the very next day, the forecast from the National Weather Service was for it to go as high as 133 degrees. And so we actually had uh, hundreds of people come here that had seen the 130 degree temperature on the news on the Sunday and then came out Monday to try to experience an even warmer temperature. As it turned out, the high temperature that next day was only 127. Uh, People were, were, uh, I don't know if you'd say disappointed by that. They certainly got to experience 127, which was, uh, which was the thing. But yeah, it was funny. The whole parking lot was full and there were news crews and they were, um, you know, watching the thermometer to, to click up another degree or whatever. So that was, that was pretty fun. (laughs) Now, a lot of movies have been filmed at Death Valley and of course the television show Death Valley Days, but it looks like very few have been made in the last 40 or 50 years. One notable movie is Star Wars in 1977, where some scenes from Luke Skywalker's home in Tatooine were shot. I wondered if you had heard any stories about movie making in Death Valley and how production crews managed the heat. Yeah, um, there's lots of stories around because in the 70s when they filmed Star Wars, um, I've talked to a couple of uh, rangers that were working here at that time. And in fact, um, two of the people that grew up here going to the Death Valley Elementary School, if you remember the scene where they had in the the first movie where they had the sand people um, or the Jawas, I think they were called, they actually just used um, a bunch of the kids from Death Valley Elementary and put them in suits. So a lot of, most of those sand people and Jawa and the Jawas were um, were Death Valley Elementary School kids. And so I've talked to a couple of them that said they got to be in the movie as, as kids. And then, uh, let's see, there was another guy that was working at the Furnace Creek gas station at the time, and he said, uh, he was talking about how a, a pickup truck from the movie set rolled up, and they were pumping gas into it, and they took a tarp off of a thing that was in the back of the truck, and it turned out to be R2-D2. What a desolate place this is. 
and said, can you put unleaded fuel in, in this contraption as well? And he's like, what is that? And they said, oh, it's part of a movie. Don't worry about it. And so he got to put uh, gas into R2-D2 that was being used in, in the movie. So there's a couple cool stories around about that. Um, you know, it really is very comfortable in the winter. Um, there's days where the high is certainly in the 60s. Uh, lows in the 40s. If anything, it's uh, it can be chilly, especially if it's it's windy. And so, and we still have um, many, many, many dozens, if not um, over 100, film permits that are issued every year. Lots of people film commercials of all types here in the park. Uh, very popular thing to do. But uh, but Lynn, you're right. I I don't think there have been any huge major uh, motion pictures filmed in the park in the last few years, uh, mostly just commercials or independent films um, or internet uh, internet films. Do they try to avoid the summer months? Um, well, yes and no. Uh, we do have uh, films here in the summer, um, although we, uh, we're reluctant to issue permits. So like, for example, we don't allow um, filming when it's above 110 degrees, uh, because that's uh, both risky for the folks doing the filming, but also if you're filming um, in a national park, you typically will have a monitor. So you have to pay a park ranger to monitor to make sure that the parks aren't impacted and that you know the visitors aren't overly impacted and, and things are, are according to the permit. And because of our work rest and heat working ratios, you don't, um, we don't ask our staff to be outside above 110 degrees if you don't have to be. And so, so for filming, we, we curtail permits at 110. And the same thing with events. If people have a bike race or a, a marathon, we'll say you have to stop when it gets to be 110 uh, is the cutoff. Now, you came to Death Valley in 2015, having worked at National Monuments in northeastern California. How was the heat adjustment for you? I moved to Death Valley in 2000, so 20 years ago, and having uh, grown up in Kentucky, uh, I, I wasn't uh, familiar with the extreme heats of here, but I had spent you know, time in the Chihuahuan Desert in, and in Arizona, and so uh, I knew I liked the heat, but it wasn't until I was here for those first five summers in the early 2000s where I really fell in love with, with being being in the heat. So the, the, hot, the heat of the summer, uh, certainly it's slightly inconvenient for, you know, uh, for some physical activity for a couple of months, although you can you know, certainly run or hike in the mornings or go up into the mountains. Um, but the weather is literally perfect for eight or nine months out of the year. So starting now all the way through mid-May, you know, our temperatures are going to be in the 70s and 80s most of the time. And the extreme temperatures are actually kind of fun to watch happen. And, and they're not um, that inconvenient, say, compared with, with winter in a lot of places. And it never rains. It's always sunny. So the weather here is actually pretty good. Um, and then, so I was here for five summers, the early 2000s. I left for 11 years and came back, yeah, in 2015 for the last six summers. And I just love it here. The, the you know, People talk about the extremes, but um, the reality is, you know, the, the best kept secret is for eight months out of the year, our weather is literally perfect. And for the four months where it's hot, it's way less inconvenient than, say, you know, winter in Michigan or whatever. So I, I embrace it. I like, I like the heat. Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to ask you, when you go on vacation, you know, do you tend to go to places that are significantly cooler or rainy, but maybe not? No, I find it hard. I mean, I actually take a lot of vacations, especially since COVID, but even before that, um, here in Death Valley. So I like to take a, 
a week off and maybe do a backpacking trip in the mountains here in the park or go to the eastern Sierra. But the, you know, the, the weather is, is so good and the hiking is so good. It's, um, I mean, there's lots of places to go. It's not that there are other, other good places to vacation, but it's not uncommon for uh, staff here to take days off um, just to go hiking or exploring around, around uh, Death Valley National Park. Now the summer heat is offset by the beauty of Death Valley and, of course, the months that are very pleasant. Can you tell us more about the park and some of the scenery that makes a visit so worthwhile? Tell us about the beauty of Death Valley. So, yeah, Death Valley is a spectacular place to visit. It depends on the the different types of things that you're interested in. But as I mentioned before, Lynn, it's such a a huge place at 3.4 million acres, like spanning all of these different elevations. It has so many different things you can see. So uh, there are the, the standard things, just the, the vistas that will um, blow you away. So a lot of people are just in awe. It's 5,000 feet from um, Badwater up to Dante's View, which you can drive to an hour later and look down into Death Valley or looking up at Dante's View. Uh, if you look across the valley up the Panamint Mountains from that same spot, you're looking at 11,000 feet. So that's twice the depth of the Grand Canyon all just from, from the floor of Death Valley. So the vistas are amazing. Um, the, you know, the weather's pretty good. So in the wintertime, we have people that love to come and camp here. We have, I want to say about 10 or 11 different campgrounds around the park that uh, have a variety of different experiences, you know, based on the elevation and location you can, you can have. We also have over a thousand miles of uh, dirt roads. So it's, uh, more dirt roads than any other national park in the system by quite a bit. And people like to come here to do dispersed camping. Um, you can certainly be guaranteed to go up a, a remote road and camp out, um, not see other people for, you know, for days at a time and, and enjoy the solitude of that. Um, Death Valley also is about over 90% uh, congressionally designated wilderness. And so um, you're able to have uh, some, some very, um, isolated experiences if you want to have that but then there's also a lot of front country where you can drive to you know see the mesquite sand dunes and the uh, golden canyon and some of the more popular hikes that most visitors like to engage with one thing that i find particularly interesting is death valley was largely settled or at least initially explored in around the turn of the century there was a lot of uh, gold mining and other types of mining so there's over 17,000 abandoned uh, mining features around the park and so you can hike around and see a lot of historic mining stuff ca- old cabins where miners used to live and and different um, different things that were left behind by the mining boom and bust cycle and so that's fun to see uh, there's a ton of uh, Native American and archaeological stuff you can see here in the park petroglyphs and and different uh, different sites and in fact we have a really good relationship with the Timbisha Shoshone tribe who have a part of a village or have a village right here at Furnace Creek. And so you can go there and, uh, well, not during COVID, but uh, they have a taco stand and, you, and a small cultural uh, museum you can go explore there. So I know there's a ton of stuff to do in Death Valley. It just goes on and on. Most people I talk to that come here for the first time say, oh, I want to come back. I want to see, you know, historic Scotty's Castle once that reopens or some of the mining sites. Uh, so I would encourage people to come here plan on a day or two, check stuff out, and then know that you're going to want to come back after that. Sounds good. Mike, I want to thank you for your time today. We appreciate your insight and your willingness to bear the heat for the enjoyment of the many folks that visit Death Valley. So stay cool. 
Yeah, thanks, Lynn. It was fun. Uh, great questions. And um, I just want to make sure everybody knows they're invited to come out to Death Valley. And Lynn, I look forward to when you come out and we'll, we'll go for a hike in the, in the summertime. All right. Thanks, Mike. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we visit with Brad Borst, the president of the Wilderness Land Trust, a nonprofit organization that works to acquire private inholdings in wilderness or designated wilderness in national parks, national forests, and U.S. Bureau of Land Management areas. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rebenchek. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can find out more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.